sorry about that. Okay, hope you're all well rested. I know some people had quite an epic journey yesterday, so hopefully you've recovered. This morning's talk is going to be given by Father Dominic Rawls. He's a priest of the Arundel and in Brighton Diocese. He studied history at St Andrews University before going to study for the priesthood at the Venerable English College in Rome, where he specialised in scripture. He's currently parish priest at St Joseph's in Dorking and lectures in scripture at St John's Seminary in Wanish. The title of his talk is Who is Christ that we should follow him? Please welcome Father Dominic. Well, the scripture quotation that goes with this talk is from John's Gospel. It's Jesus' words to his uh, disciples uh, during his farewell discourse just before his crucifixion. And he says to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Now, in that sentence, there are two I's and five you's there's clearly a connection between who Christ is and what he expects us to do and the vocation and calling that he gives us. In other words, he associates us with him in his work of salvation, in his work of bringing humanity to its fullness of being and allowing us to enter into heaven. So we are not passive recipients in this thing. We are active in the cause of Christ. And so therefore, to ask that question, who is Christ that we should follow him, is absolutely key. In fact, you have to stay awake for this talk, no matter how good I am, because unless you understand this, you're not going to understand what uh, happens following. It's key that you understand who Christ is and why it is that we should follow him. So lest I be accused of not answering the question in my talk, I'll do so uh, in a sentence. Who is Christ that we should follow him? Christ is God, and therefore the only true fulfillment and yearning of the human soul. So that's my answer to the question. hope to elaborate it in this talk. To connect it with what Father Ross was saying last night, and to hand over to my colleagues who will uh, deliver the rest of the talks um, on the church and the sacraments uh, uh, as the week progresses. So we've heard about the soul. We need to define some terms and orientate ourselves in this question. We've heard about the soul from Father Ross. The soul is the principle of God's life within man, the principle through which God environs us, sustains us in being and brings us to our full potential. That's a favorite faith word, isn't it? Environment. That we see a direct analogy between uh, the material universe and the environment that we experience naturally and of which we are a part and the environment that we experience exclusively, which is the environment of God, which we experience through the spiritual soul. So God does for us what nature does for life below man. He gives us uh, support, gives us an ecosystem, if you like, in which we are supported and sustained and achieve our fullness of being. That's the whole beauty of the faith synthesis between science and religion. 
that we can talk in an analogous way between the way that nature works or the natural sciences and the way in which the spirit of God works in the human soul. So he is our environment, the one who environs us. We heard too about the nature of man, really important to get this, get this right and to um, have it really clear in our hearts and minds. Nature of man is body and soul. We are physical and spiritual. Now, nature tells us what man is as body and soul and therefore indicates to us the life law that our creator has written into us, what we need in order to come alive. Again, there's this beautiful analogy which we always talk about in faith between the natural world and ourselves. Nature or the life law written into a plant, for instance, dictates that that plant needs earth and water and sunlight. It's a life law written into that thing and the thriving of that creature depends on obedience to the life law. If we give a plant water and sunlight but do not put it in the earth, it will not survive. All uh, aspects of its nature must be fulfilled in order that that thing thrive. And so it is with man. We're physical, we need food and shelter and warmth. But as Father Ross said so eloquently, we are also spiritual. And ultimately we need God, that we're made by him and for him, and without him we cannot find our true vocation, our true sense of being really important. Our nature is the life law that God has written into us so, so that we might thrive and be with him in this life and eternally in the next. So another thing we have to consider, our personality. Now our personality is our unique and God-given way of being human. Each and every one of us has a different personality because we're a different human being and we're totally unique. Personality tells us who man is, who we are. We are one acting human person with two distinct principles of being, body and soul. We are made in the image and likeness of God, and that likeness is principally in the soul. As I say to a lot of our confirmation candidates, so does God look like you or look like me? No, that likeness is principally in the soul. And so we are unique. That's so important to stress. We are unique, and God has a way of loving us that he loves no one else in a way that he loves no one else. If you like, there's a, an us-shaped hole in God's heart, and only we can fill that hole and fulfill that purpose and that way of loving and living that he has given us to, to, to do. And that's why we as a church, each and every one of us has a unique vocation to pull together in the body of Christ and to, um, to contribute and make our part and do our thing in order that we come alive and experience ourselves uh, and the whole world as God made it to be experienced. So God floods our being with his life and his love. He develops our potential and allows us to become the sort of men and women we are meant to be. We need God as the fish needs the water 
or the bird needs the air. It's as simple and as profound as that. God is not an optional extra in human living and human thriving. We need him. We need him as a matter of necessity, as a matter of urgency. So how are we to receive him? How is he going to communicate to us? Now, given that he has made us body and soul, we, then we would expect him to communicate to us body and soul. If God is to communicate his life to us to feed our life, then he must communicate to us in the same way that he has made us, that is, body and soul, physically as well as spiritually, otherwise there is no real communication. Like must communicate with like. So therefore we would expect God to take on human flesh, a human nature, in order to truly and fully communicate his life to us. This he does in Jesus Christ. It's a really profound point. It's really important that you get it. And it is actually quite simple. I communicate with you today, both physically and spiritually. I don't just stand here and telepathically communicate my thoughts to you. No, I have to use sound. I have to use a physical means of communication. Otherwise, there's no communication at all. And given that God has made us physically and spiritually, he needs to communicate to us spiritually and physically. In other words, in faith, we argue that from the nature of man, you would expect the incarnation. You would expect that God take on human flesh in order to communicate body and soul with his creature whom he has brought to life and seeks to bring to heaven with him. So Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, living eternally in the bosom of the Father. That's who Jesus is. He is fully God. So that, and so that we can share in his life and fulfill our potential as God's creatures, made in his own image and likeness, he becomes fully man. So as I'm always saying to the First Communion kids, who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. So that's what I'm always saying to them. But we need to take these principles on board to mull them and to unpack them in our own spiritual lives so that the truth uh, of that statement becomes a living and vibrant principle within us. So our de nature demands this, and God gives it to us in the life of his incarnate Son. So you, please, God, you'll be able to see how Jesus is absolutely vital for our coming to life in God. So since we are unique individuals and unique personal identities, this communication or revelation of God's life to us will also be personal because it's like communicating with like. It will be at the same time God's fulfillment of his entire creative purpose in the making of the universe and also God's intimate fulfillment of me, as uniquely loved and treasured as someone unrepeatable and without peer in the eyes of God. So it's macro and micro at the same time. It is that fulfillment 
of creation. We've talked about evolution, about lower forms of life combining towards higher forms of life in an ascending scale towards the creation of man. We've seen man, as Father Ross was telling us, as uniquely different, as qualitatively different, as one who is at once part of this material universe, but has that extra dimension of soul. We've seen that, and that now we've seen too that man cannot come fully alive unless God communicate himself with us. And so in the coming of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus Christ as not only the Lord of creation, for whom everything was made, but the Lord of human history as well, as the one who was to come into the world in order that we might have fullness of life in him and with him. It's a magnificent vision. It's a magnificent wisdom. And part of the beauty of it is that it's utterly profound and utterly simple. It com completely encompasses the whole of creation, but it's also as intimate as the indwelling of God's life uniquely in each and every one of us. So Jesus comes as the master key who fulfills God's plan for the whole of creation. And as the master key who unlocks the meaning of my life in a unique and joy-filled personal encounter. This is our salvation, to use a theological word, to gain we have to understand fully in order to uh, not just appreciate, but, but to taste its fruits. Salvation, as you know, comes from the Latin word salus, meaning health or wealth or well-being. Salvation is Jesus Christ is precisely what I've been talking about, is the receiving of fullness of being, fullness of health or well-being from God made known in Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. So we would always have needed to be saved because we would always have needed to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ because our nature, as we've tried to demonstrate, demands it. So Jesus communicating health and well-being to us from the wealth of his divine being, that's what salvation is. We are all made by God and for God. And in Jesus, we receive the fullness of the Godhead prompting a life, a joy, and a peace in us that was always meant to be. This personal encounter is a unique invitation to allow us to know and be known by God, to love and be loved by Jesus Christ, who is the human face of God, as St. John puts it so beautifully in his Gospel. Indeed, from his fullness, we have all of us received, yes, grace in return for grace, since though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. So then, rather a jarring question, when Jesus came among us in the fullness of time, why then did we hang him on a cross? Why, why did we do to him what we would not do to our worst enemy, let alone to our God? We crucified him because we are sinners. That means we are rebels against God. 
We are liars who will not acknowledge the rightful place of the Creator as gentle master of the creature. The right of God to come into his own, even our hearts. Again, as St. John puts it in his Gospel. The Word was the true light that enlightens all men, and he was coming into the world. He was in the world that had its being through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own domain, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God. Sin, then, is turning away from God, experiencing loss of self through loss of God. That follows, doesn't it? If in God we receive fullness of being, in the rejection of God we lose that fullness of being and we lose ourselves. As intelligent creatures, we are given the gift of free will in order to come to God of our own volition. If we are created out of love and for love, then we must be free, since love implies freedom. In giving us the gift of free will, God accepts the possibility of the misuse of that gift to go against God and assert a false autonomy in all things. We, who are creatures, usurp the place of God and break communion with him. The disaster of sin is irrational and self-destructive, and we bring it down upon ourselves. So do understand that point about free will, so important. You all know it. You cannot love someone without free will. If I try and make you my friend, whatever happens, it's not love. It's usually, go away, creep, awful. (laughs) And the reason why it's creepy is because there's coercion involved. Love implies freedom. We all know it, but now we need perhaps to meditate on it and to live that freedom in Christ. So this rebellion against God is, in fact, the historical experience of man. This is what happened. Our first parents, as you know, called Adam and Eve in the Bible. Adam means means, um, man. Eve means she who brings life. Our first parents rebelled against God through pride, bringing on disobedience. I will not serve. That was the first sin. For the first time in creation, disharmony and imbalance enter in and wreak havoc in our souls and our lives. Again, this is not of God or the plan of God, but through the weak vanity of man, tempted by Satan and falling from his place of communion with God into darkness. This original sin, therefore, has three effects. Firstly, the loss of of communion with God, the loss of God. And if what I've been saying this morning is true, you can see how disastrous that is. Secondly, death, which we define as the disintegration of body and soul. We've made great play of talking about the nature of man. And death is that disintegration of body and soul, the separation of body and soul. In human beings, death is not of God. Death is through sin, 
and through the disobedience of man. The third effect of original sin is a disorder in our good and God-given passions that leads us into sin. This is called concupiscence. Not sin itself, but the tendency to sin. Original sin and its effects are passed on in the species by propagation. So we all inherit original sin and compound its effects through personal sinning. So maybe that's a good principle to understand. Concupiscence is really important for us to understand. Lots of people come to me and say, um, in confession and say, Oh, Father, I had a dirty thought. And I'm thinking, you old liar, you had 30,000 like the rest of us. The point is, what did you do with it? The emotion or the feeling itself, the passion itself, is not sinful. It's what we do with it that is potentially virtuous or vicious. Do remember that. It will save you from agonies of pain and lack of discernment. But that is, that tendency to do sin is a a result of original sin. As St. Peter says, when exposed in his heart after Jesus causes a miraculous draught of fish, leave me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So when Jesus comes into his own in the fullness of time and in the fullness of God's plan, he is rejected and rebuffed, derided and discounted. Like a demented patient who lashes out at the doctor who carries his cure, mankind marginalizes his maker and declares himself just not interested. In the end, Jesus just becomes a downright nuisance and we engineer a thousand ways to rid ourselves of him and be our own gods. Original sin does not destroy our human nature, in fact, but it does damage it deeply. We are sick and in mortal danger, but we are not dead yet. Like the good Samaritan who pours the wine of his precious blood and the oil of his divine healing into the wounds of fallen humanity, Jesus makes provision for us by his life, death and resurrection. He turns the tables on sin and death, By taking on all that these twin evils can can inflict on human nature in his own nature, he conquers them on on our behalf and redefines human nature as we experience it, away from sin and death. Because he is man like us in all things but sin, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has an immediate relevance to us. Because he is God, Jesus' life and death and resurrection has power to effect us all. We are made through and for him. Therefore, his divine action has power over all our actions. It has power to redeem us, to set right the imbalance in humanity brought on by the disaster of sin, to make us one again with God, by making up for our lack in his loving sacrifice. Sin damages us and makes necessary this redemption 
of fallen humanity. And Jesus makes it a reality for us in the conduct of his life, death, and resurrection. Human action has nothing to boast of in this, save only the selfless, loving human action of Jesus, who conquers on our behalf. We do nothing. He does everything. Perhaps we should say thank you and find room for God in our lives. Perhaps we should go to Mass on Sundays at the very least and make his loving sacrifice our own. Our encounter with Jesus, then, is not really an optional extra, though we still retain our freedom to accept or reject it. Jesus draws each one of us to him, not to entrap us, but to set us free. He takes on our yoke. He makes all our burdens light. Jesus has a magnetic personality, but he does not force himself on us. He talks to us, even challenges us, but he does not shout. He respects our freedom and never gives up on us. Take the example of Peter, how his personal encounter with Jesus changes his life and gives him a unique calling or vocation. In our own way, it is the same with us. For this is well-known passage from Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say he is John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he said, who do you say I am? Then Simon Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Simon, son of Jonah, you are a happy man, because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So I now say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the underworld can never hold out against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. Jesus is very clever, very clever. He asks an innocent question, which everybody can answer. Who do people say I am? And then he zeroes in. Well, who do you say I am? And that's reflective of each of our encounters with Christ. He will say to us at some stage in our lives, who do you say I am? And Peter, who was notorious for getting everything wrong most of the time, actually gets it right. Probably the exception rather than rule. I'm saying this to encourage us because we're often the same. But actually Peter gets it right. And through the grace of God, as he says, it was not flesh and blood that reveals this to you, he gives Jesus his true title. He says who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is a spark of faith in the darkness of Peter's heart, and Christ catches it and fans it into a flame for the salvation of Peter and for our good in the church as he founds the church 
on Peter's faith. So Peter gives Christ his identity, and Christ, in the power of his divinity, gives Peter his identity. In fact, changes his identity from that of an impetuous fisherman to Peter, the rock on whose faith the church will be built and still is built in the successors of Peter, the Pope, uh, the Pope's down to our present 265th successor of St. Peter, Pope Francis himself. But the point I'm trying to make here is the personal encounter of Peter with Jesus, which will mirror our personal encounter as well. We might not have the same vocation, but we do have a vocation. We have a calling. And we might not be Peter, but our calling is just as important in God's eyes. We are unrepeatable. He will not stop loving us and wanting us to do that for which we were created. We just have to put our way, ourselves, in the way of God's grace and allow it to happen within us. So though Peter is given the sure power of the keys uh, to heaven as prince of the apostles, we learn later on how his courage failed and he systematically and completely denied Christ three times. All the Gospels record it, but perhaps Luke's is the most poignant of all. My friend, said Peter, I do not know who you are talking about. At that instant, while he was still speaking, the cock crew and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. Before the cock crows today, you will have disowned me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Why that account is so important is it's the only account that talks about Jesus turning and looking at Peter. And it's not the look of condemnation that breaks Peter's heart, but the look of love and acceptance. Just as Jesus accepts all our sins as he goes to the cross. That's what breaks our hearts. It's not defiance, it's love and acceptance. To learn to be accepted and to accept ourselves is so important. And only Jesus gives us the power and the capacity to do that, even when we're sinful and harm-ridden people. So there we have Peter given a vocation by God. We see Peter fallen as well. And maybe we can associate with him in that. But lastly, we need to consider the power of the resurrection. Very, very important because Jesus' life, death and resurrection must be taken as a whole. So we consider the power of the resurrection to change humanity and transform our lives. What made Peter change from being a coward and no friend of Jesus into a true and possibly the greatest apostle, willing to give his life for his master in the circus of Domitian in Rome in 64 AD, though he insisted that he be crucified upside down as one rendered unworthy by his denials to die in the same way as the Christ. 
Well, you've got to admit there's a change there. There's a change from the man who says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. The man who proves it in his denials, but who has changed in those 30 years from the uh, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ into his, the time of his own death. Something has changed him, not just a bit, but radically, absolutely radically. It was the experience of seeing, touching, and beholding the risen flesh of Christ. Suddenly, Peter could see in front of his eyes the divine destiny of human flesh. He could see humanity transformed and fit for heaven, strong beyond the measure of sin and death, beautiful and radiant in the joyful figure of the risen Lord. It was not complex, or Peter would not have understood it. It was not demanding, or he would have denied it. It was not difficult, or he would have found a way out of it. It was standing there right in front of him, and it was not going away. It was Jesus, joy-filled and joy-giving, in the radiance and fullness of humanity redeemed. That's what he saw. He didn't see rocket science or things too hard to take. He saw redeemed human flesh, and it transformed him. Okay, the Lord breathed on them and promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that indeed was a transformation too. But it was this experience that changed him from being a coward into being a prince of the apostles. And I suppose my point is that it can be the same with us, that the personal encounter with Christ will change us in ways that we do not think possible. There are parts of our lives which we would rather cover over. There are parts of our lives that we would rather deny. If we have the grace to give them to God and allow them to be transformed by him, they will work for us. They will be transformed, and our humanity will be transformed after the model of his own humanity. And what he saw, what Peter saw, was humanity no longer defined by sin and death, by weakness, and by these three score years and ten, or whatever it is that we're given on earth. He saw everlasting humanity, and he saw that he could be part of it. And I suppose it was as simple as saying, I want some of that. I think that's really, it, it has to be as simple as that, otherwise Peter would never have grasped it. It was as simple and as powerful as that. And he did it. And all I'm trying to say, really, is you can do it as well. You can do it as well. Peter doesn't have any advantage over you. But in the encounter with the risen Christ, you too can be transformed. If you just allow his grace to work, if you use that good and God-given free will to say yes, often to say yes in spite, in spite of yourself. So then... How do we have access to this humanity redeemed? How do we encounter this Jesus who is our life and our capacity for loving truly and without reservation? We live 2,000 years after the saving events of Jesus' life on earth occurred. How do we see the risen Lord? 
Jesus found a way in the church he founded on Peter's faith, a place where he keeps his promise not to leave us as orphans, namely the Catholic and universal church, and most specifically in her sacraments and life of prayer. But my colleagues will explore that later with you in other talks. But learn perhaps particularly from this talk that it is the personal encounter with Christ that transforms us and that sustains us. As a priest, you see it as privilege and as invitation into the lives of people, many of whom you don't know. Given a natural, material and earthly wisdom, you would expect people who are facing death to be full of despair and a sense of foreboding. The experience of priests very often is that people who are faith-filled and have had experience that encounter with Christ, the opposite is true. They achieve a serenity which is an inner recognition that life is not ended but changed and that its fullness can be experienced in the true life of heaven. We need that. We need some of that, each and every one of us. So let's pray God that we accept it. Thank you, Father Dominic. Um, we're going to have time for questions with Father Dominic this morning, but we'll have tea and coffee first after a few announcements. The tuck shop will be open for the next half an hour, and if you want to go to the tuck shop, it's up the stairs, through the doors, and turn left. Lunch today is at 1.30, and then we'll have free time, during which you can go to Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel between 3 and 4 p.m., We'll have sports this afternoon. If you do want to play football, it's in the sports hall, which is located just outside the Millennium Centre, turn right, and it's on the left. If you look for Mark, he'll be there around 2 o'clock. Thank you. Um, swimming this afternoon is between 1pm and 3.30. You will need your own towel for that, which was on the induction pack. Quick reminder, if you are in the chapel and you're wearing a vest, can you make sure that you